We continue today with our journey through the first part of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches. Um, we've looked at sort of the introduction to this section, and last week, um, Corey preached to us on the church in Ephesus, and this week we are going to hear about the church in Smyrna. Um, this is in Revelation chapter 2. And what I would love for you to do is to get out your scriptures, whether you brought your Bible or have it uh, on your phone or tablet, um, pull that out and follow along because it is always helpful, but I feel like especially in a book like Revelation, it's especially helpful um, to read it for yourself and to see uh, what's happening and, and see um, the words, God's word that he has put into these pages. So we're in Revelation chapter 2, that's at the back of your Bibles. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 8. And while you find that, just a little bit of background here on the church in Smyrna. Um, This was an important coastal town in Asia Minor. It rivaled Ephesus in its prestige and power. Um, It was a very wealthy city, very affluent. It was also very um, significantly beautiful. It, was, it had a, a high level of natural beauty. We even see that in, in, in historians when they write about this town. They write about its beauty. Um, Christianity was introduced probably as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So we read about it in Acts and we have his letter to the Ephesians. This, this city probably was um, a beneficiary of that ministry. And we know that the Christian community there would grow and thrive even after John's ministry and even after this letter. We know that the community there thrived. And one of the reasons we know that is because we have um, letters to and letters from a second century bishop named Polycarp. You might have heard of him before. Fabulous name. I commend it to any, um, anybody looking for a name for their child. Polycarp should be near the top of your list. But we have letters to Polycarp from a man named Ignatius of Antioch, one of the great fathers of the church. Uh, We have letters from Polycarp to the Philippian Christians in Macedonia. He was a long-serving and faithful bishop. And Polycarp, what we realize, is an in-the-flesh example of the faithfulness that is encouraged in our passage this morning. Polycarp, you see, was martyred. He was burned at the stake. And there's an account of his martyrdom. You can look it up on on, on Google. It's called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it's amazing the faithfulness that this man had as he was marched to death. And you have to wonder, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, you have to wonder, did he read these words that we read this morning? When he was a young man, did he hear about this letter from Jesus through John and read these words? And was he encouraged to stand strong in the face of persecution? I'd have to think he was, and he did. Because what we see in John's day, what's going on here at the time of this letter, is that there's this, this forerunner to the persecution that happened to Polycarp. The Christians in this town are being persecuted because of their faith. Now, what's going on? Let's dive into this a little more deeply. Um, 
The scripture says there in verse 9, or verse, um, yeah, verse 9, that Jesus knows of the slander against the Christians of those who say they are Jews but are not. So the Christians are being slandered by folks who say they are Jewish but are not. What does this mean? Well, I think it's most likely not a reference to the local Jewish synagogue. Instead, I think we're more likely here to have Christians, Gentile Christians, who had accepted Jewish customs or perhaps even become Jewish themselves, and those are the ones who are persecuting the church here. You might remember that from Galatians. That was the problem in Galatia, that that some teachers came into the Galatian churches, they called Judaizers, and they said, okay, Jesus is great, but you also have to become Jewish. You have to accept Jewish law and Jewish customs to actually know salvation. I think something similar is happening here. Now, it could be that they've been persuaded by false teachers, just like the Galatians, or it could be that they have converted because they themselves are trying to avoid persecution. Consider this, Judaism was an ancient religion that was more or less accepted by the Roman authorities. When Rome conquered you, their, their general idea was, we'll let you keep your customs and your gods, you know, as long as you don't get too rowdy about it, as long as you keep it toned down and don't get too rebellious, you can worship the gods you have. That was their way of keeping people peaceful. And the Jews had this ancient religion, and, and by and large were allowed to do the same, except for when they were rebellious and then they were, they were, they were squashed. The Christians, however... As they separated themselves or distinguished themselves from the Jewish faith, they were viewed with suspicion. They were considered to be rabble-rousers. They were accused of being servants of a king other than Caesar, which, by the way, was true. They were considered to be dangerous to the order and the peace of the Roman Empire. That one, not so true. No matter how they were framed, They were set up as a group in opposition to Caesar and a group that needed to be dealt with. And so the idea is that many Gentiles, even Gentile Christians, may have converted to Judaism to avoid this persecution. And in fact, in an effort to deflect attention, they might have called to the Roman authorities and said, hey, the Christians are over here. Guess what they're doing? And persecution then was coming. They slandered the church in Smyrna. They accused them. And so we see that, right, in verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I know what? The slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. Or verse 10, the devil, the accuser, is about to throw some of you into prison. The reality on the ground for these Christians in Smyrna is that persecution is coming. They've been accused of being dangerous and rebellious to Roman rule, and they're staring down the barrel of persecution because of it. Now, it might be helpful this morning if we just pause for a moment and have an honest reflection ourselves. In many ways, it might seem that this world is not really that far away from the world described here in Revelation. 
Sometimes it feels like persecution is imminent. Even if, if we're not necessarily being persecuted in the West, like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are in other countries, there's certainly um, perhaps a shame or a stigma or ridicule that we open ourselves up to when we are honest and open about our faith. Now, we might be tempted to think this is, this is something that hasn't happened for a couple thousand years. That things used to be bad and then society got better and Christian and now it's going the wrong way again. And so these things are coming back. We might be tempted to blame it on a culture that is no longer Christian or a society that has lost its moral bearings. We might even desire perhaps to go back to a time when everybody was Christian. Wouldn't that be so much better? But friends, here's the truth of the matter. A true and lively faith in Jesus has always faced scorn and ridicule and even persecution. A true and lively faith in Jesus, a bold faithfulness has always faced these things. And actually, this slander, persecution has come from outside of the church for sure but it comes from inside the church as well. Now, sometimes it can seem clear, and we can point to examples, of Christians that were persecuted and scorned by non-Christians. These things are easy, easy to point out. We can think about the martyrs, the modern-day martyrs in the, the Middle East who were being persecuted by ISIS, right? Uh, we can think about, just on a general level, the derision and shame that, it, that, that is sometimes cast upon Christians by many in the upper echelons of our society in the West today. But even within the church, Christians have a history of shaming and persecuting other Christians for centuries. In our own heritage, we had um, Wycliffe and, and Tyndale, they were both burned at the stake for translating the Bible into a language that people could actually read. There were Puritans and Huguenots who were so persecuted at home that they felt compelled to leave for a new continent. Even today, we have Democrats and Republicans, and both of them are shaming the others and saying they're not Christians. This happens. There were African slaves converted to Christianity by their masters, Christian masters, many times, only to remain enslaved, even given a distorted version of the gospel and Bibles that had any reference to freedom scratched out of them. And there were ancestors of these slaves faithful Christian men and women who were summarily denied basic human rights and in many cases denied them by other Christians. This is part of our history. And so the lesson of the persecution of the church in Smyrna is that this is the way it's always been. And perhaps, perhaps this morning we should consider If the line between the faithful Christians and the Judaizing Gentiles, if the line between faithful Christians today and and not-so-faithful Christians, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps this line is not so clear, and perhaps it runs through the middle of every single heart in this room. 
And so we have this persecution going on in Smyrna. And to be sure, there is a long history of Christians being persecuted by non-Christians. That has happened. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might see that tendency on one level or another in our own hearts. But why is it happening? Why are these Christians being persecuted? Well, I think at the end of the day, the motivations behind um, the persecuting, the slandering, the shaming, at the end of the day is that these people posed a threat. They were a threat to the power of the Jewish ruling class. They were a threat to the power of the Roman Empire. Look, the Romans lined their roads with intimidation, didn't they? They wanted to remind everyone, look, we might give you a little leeway, but we're going to remind you who's in charge. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to crucify people on the side of the road. If you're going to walk into this town, you're going to see what happens to somebody who goes against Roman rule. They get nailed to a cross. So think twice before you come in here stirring up trouble, right? That's what they did. It was a terrifying time. Terrifying. And so these are hard words that Jesus has for the church in Smyrna. They're hard words. But the great amazing thing about Jesus is that his hard words always include a promise. They always include a promise and they always include hope. And so he's speaking this challenging word. He's saying, look, folks, things are hard now. Guess what? They're getting worse. Persecution is coming. You will be tested. You will be imprisoned. You might be martyred. But Jesus does not leave them without hope. He does not leave them without a promise. And these promises are abundant in our passage this morning. Even there in verse 8, who's writing this letter to the church? These are the words of who? The first and the last. They're the words of the one who died and came to life. He writes to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, your physical poverty, but guess what? You see that parenthetical citation there? But you are rich. You are rich with riches beyond earthly measure. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you what there in verse, uh, what verse is that? Verse 10. I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What good news. What good words. Christians know something. We get something. We realize that, that the death we all witness, the death we will all experience is not the last word. There is a second death. And we have victory over that death by the one who has already died and has been raised to life. He has claimed that victory, and he is giving it to us. What a word of promise. And it seems like now the Romans have a problem. Because when they march people by their crosses, and the ones they're crucifying on the sides of the road, when they're marching Christians by those crosses, guess what? They're not afraid. There's nothing to fear. They serve Jesus Christ. They have thrown The worst has been thrown at Jesus, and he has been raised from the dead. The one who died and now lives. And that promise is there for anyone who would follow him. 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who is faithful unto death will be given the crown of life. What good news. Jesus has already conquered the worst. And he offers those who would follow him the same thing. So there is promise and hope in the midst of persecution. What are we going to do with this? Well, the challenging thing sometimes is is we have a tendency, or we like sometimes, to, we don't, I don't know if we like it or not, but, but we, we, we see this as a future promise, and it's way out there, right? It's not as far for some of us as it is for others, but it's out there. And it's like we're just biding our time or waiting. But Jesus has made a future promise to us, and through his Holy Spirit, he makes it a very present reality. And so these Christians in in ancient Rome, they could walk by a cross and not be afraid to be bold in their faithfulness because they know death has no power over them. And so we're invited to live as faithful, bold Christians because we know the worst the world can do to us is nothing compared to the crown that awaits us. So what are we going to do with this? Well, the first thing is, is this. I'm, I'm certain, I have no doubt, that there are a few folks in here who are not Christians, who, who do not believe. And, and maybe you're not sure why you're here, or maybe you do know why you're here. Um, either way, you don't believe. And maybe, maybe, I would say probably, there's a few folks in here who have participated, not in intense persecution, but in some level of shame or ridicule of somebody for what they believe. And even to take it a step farther, I would even say there are Christians, and I'm probably included among, among them, who have felt some sort of shame or expressed that towards other Christians for the very similar motivations that a non-Christian would. What does this have to say to us and to them? Well, Jesus had a word for you. Do you remember the Apostle Paul, right? He was persecuting Christians. He was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus approached to him, and he said, Paul, well, Saul, at the time he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? What are you afraid of? What are you striving for? What sort of power or position are you longing for that we, you feel like that these behaviors are important and necessary? where it might be necessary to scorn or to shame someone else. Jesus says, there's no need for that. In my kingdom, in my kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. In my kingdom, we're all on the same playing field. We're all sinners in need of grace, Jesus says. There's no need for that. Come to me. Come to my cross. Receive forgiveness and grace so you don't have to do these things anymore. That's the invitation. And then for those of us who might feel persecuted, shamed and scorned, who might feel like injustice is being perpetrated, perpetuated, excuse me, Jesus has a message for us as well. That he is coming back. That he will return. He came once as a humble babe in a manger, and he will return in glory 
and power, and he's going to set this world to rights, and his kingdom will reign, and he will be at the center of it, and there'll be no more evil, and no more fear, and no more injustice, and no more shame, and no more persecution, but only Christ and life eternal. That is our promise. That's where we're looking. May our gaze always be on that. And may that future reality overflow in our hearts today. That the love of Christ may be known to us and may it overflow into this world. It may be so strong that we can look our enemies and our persecutors in the eyes and say, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing.